You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, hey, good to be gathered together um, wherever you may be. That's good for to see your faces here this morning and know that many of you are joining us online as well. Thanks, band, for leading us through worship this morning. Thank you, James, and thank you, Mike, for running uh, on the sound. Really appreciate uh, all of you folks who continue to sustain this ministry. It's a joy uh, to be here. And for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is James. Um, I oversee uh, a lot of things, kids and youth, um, on the elder team and on staff as well. So it's my pleasure to continue us forward as we study the book of Matthew. So as we get started, I wanted to kind of tell a glimpse into my own life in, in that before I went to seminary, I took a year off uh, and I lived at home, uh, worked a ton of hours at lots of different jobs for the sole purpose of uh, paying off my debt. And one of those jobs, I had some interesting jobs, one of those jobs was that I was a mall cop. Yes, I was a mall cop, and it was the overnight shift. Um, It sounds exciting, right? Uh, Honestly, nothing ever happened. It was not exciting. But part of my training uh, entailed several, like, self-defense classes, which were kind of cool. And one of those classes was how to properly use pepper spray, which was the only weapon that we were allowed to carry. Uh, And so the trainer of this course, he goes through the material, and he concludes with these words. He says, if you're going to carry the spray first, you have to be sprayed. So I'm like, okay, peace out. (laughs) No thanks. No, just joking. Uh, I was a good employee. I said, okay, let's do this. And so I follow the trainer into this very small room. And uh, I think he's all masked up, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm anxious as all get out, like, what's going to happen? This has never happened to me before. I'm in this small room. It's just the trainer. And he begins to ask me a series of questions. And I'm like, I don't, am I supposed to? I don't know what to do. So I reluctantly begin to answer his questions. And right then, it happened. Sprayed me right in my eyeballs. And I have no idea how many of you have been hit by pepper spray. I hope not many, but I can testify as someone who was hit directly in the face that it is blinding. And fortunately for me, there was another person who came into the room, like grabbed my elbow and and guided me out of the room, led me to like this five-gallon bucket, dunked my head like in it, gave me this towel to wipe off. I think it was supposed to help. It didn't. My eyes stung like none other for hours. And of course, my shift at the Olive Garden was soon to start, right? Not a great day, but here's the deal. I temporarily lost my vision in those moments, and even for for some hours afterwards, it was very blurry. And I couldn't necessarily see the things right in front of me that I should have so easily been able to see. I I was blinded, right? Helpless to see my my own very way out of this, this small room that I had just entered. I had just come in, but I had to depend on somebody else to to find my way out. Someone else had to give me my deliverance, so to speak. 
And today as we continue in Matthew, we're going to encounter two different stories of this same type of blindness, a, a spiritual blindness that causes the characters in our stories to miss the truth of Jesus, even though he's right there in front of them. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me or have a phone with a Bible on it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Because I'm holding this mic, I, I have all the, the verses written down. I may just refer to it here on my paper, but if you have a Bible, it's good for you to see it in front of you. Matthew 13. And as you turn there, let me just remind you where we have been. Because Matthew 13, it's a chapter full of parables. We've seen it. Seven parables. All parables that teach about God's kingdom. And if you look back at that first parable in chapter 13, it's the parable of the soils. And, and in this parable, Jesus compares different types of soils to different responses that humanity will have towards God. Right? There's, there's going to be good soil, those who, who hear the truth and respond in faith. There's good soil. But there's also hard soil, right? Folks will reject truth. They will be resistive to the things of God. And it's in this hard soil, it's in this hard soil where we find our two stories today. Individuals resistive to truth who reject Jesus. And I know for, for some of us this morning, that, that, that can really hit home close to us. It may be a reality for us, but for, for I think many of us have, have family, we, we have friends, we have neighbors that we, that we pray and pray and pray over years that they come to faith, that they see the truth of Jesus. And yet, for some reason, the soil, the soil of their, their heart remains hardened, resistive to Jesus. So in a sense, like, we ask ourselves, well, how, how do we persevere in that faithfulness of praying for good soil? How long can we actually hold on to that hope? And perhaps some of us, we're ready or we already have given up on these individuals. On one hand, Jesus says to us in the parable of the soil, he says, it's fact. There is hard soil. Folks will be blinded to the truth of Jesus, unable to see. But on the other hand, Jesus says that there is great hope, for there is good soil. And, and we're going to see in our story this morning that even in the midst of the hard soil, Jesus is there. Jesus is present, and he's providing a way out. And that's our big idea this morning. I love the song that we concluded our time, and it's simply this idea that I think fits with that song. It's just, do not miss Jesus. Do not miss Jesus. Would you pray with me as we turn our hearts to God? Lord, we fully acknowledge that we need you in our life to un veil your scripture, that we would hear from you. Open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We recognize that without you, we will leave unchanged. So Lord, we plead for you to sharpen and to bring understanding as we lean into your word. Amen. Well, we have two stories. The first one beginning in verse 53 of Matthew 13. So if you let your eyes fall on that in verse 53, we have a group of individuals who, in a real sense, become blinded by their familiarity 
with Jesus and ultimately miss the truth of who he is, blinded by their familiarity. Verse 53, if you read with me, Matthew says this, and when Jesus finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, Jesus taught them in their synagogue. So, so here we have Jesus. He's wrapped up this, this sermon series on the kingdom through parables in chapter 13. He's wrapped it up, and now we see that he's coming home, right? And home is Nazareth. And it's a small, out-of-the-way type of town. Now, I was born and raised in a small town in Iowa, and I, and I lived there from birth to, to college, same house, same street. And, and just the other week, I went back for the first time to visit my folks in a long time, and I saw others in my, in my home neighborhood, right? And, and we physically distanced, we waved at each other. But I, I knew the folks in my home. And, and even though now two decades have passed, they know me. They still know me. They still know my story and what I do. Because home in a lot of ways, and especially to me, since I lived in one place for all those years, is it's my place of belonging. I've lived in Madison, my wife and I now, we've lived here for eight years, but in a lot of ways, what's most familiar, where I feel some of the deepest uh, connections and relationships, really is in my home, back in Robbins, Iowa. And for Jesus, I think this would have been entirely true. Because in this, this culture where, where mostly farmers, and, and they, they would live on, on dependence on one another, right? They would depend on one another for survival. And without modern transportation to go from here to there, like folks would put deep roots in where they lived. And again, Nazareth is not a large town. I was surprised by this, but scholars actually estimate just a few hundred people would have lived in Nazareth. And so for nearly, nearly three decades, these few hundred people lived with Jesus. Meaning Jesus would have gone through the same schooling as every other kid in town. He would have formed those same child friendships that we all do as we go through school, right? Jesus, he he would have worked as a carpenter following his father's trade in this community. And, And I would imagine it's crazy to think that most people probably in that community could point to something in the house and say, yeah, Jesus built that for me. And just imagine the value if we had something that Jesus crafted in our home. That's pretty valuable, at least for Christians maybe. (laughs) And Jesus would have gone to the same synagogue every day to worship with everyone else. Likely it's the same synagogue that we see here in our story of Matthew 13. I'm just trying to say this is Jesus' home. This is his place on earth of belonging. And I would imagine the the folks who who live in Nazareth, they've begun to hear the stories of Jesus from afar, right? They've heard, hey, Jesus is going around with like these crazy miracles, this unbelievable power. He's he's demonstrating an intellect and understanding of Scripture that is, is crazy. Like they're hearing, they're probably hearing these things. So I'm just imagining here, but when it, as he's coming back home, in some sense, it's almost, I think, kind of like a hero's welcome. You know, like the small town, you, sh- you string up the banners, the sign on Main Street says, welcome to Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, the miracle-working prophet. I'm just, I'm just imagining here. But I do think that as he comes into the synagogue, I think it's packed. I think it's packed on this day. Home 
home folks are eager to hear their boy deliver the message. And so for, for us outside looking in, I, I think, at least I assume that as Jesus finishes up his teaching that the local folks, like, they're going to be lining up at the door eager to, like, to shake his hand, you know, proud that one of their own has, has made it. But that's not how our story unfolds. Verse 54, Jesus comes home, he teaches in the synagogue, and it does say that they're astonished, right? And they are astonished. So there's some level of initial astonishment that happens here. But we'll quickly see that this astonishment turns to unbelief. This astonishment turns to unbelief. And this has got to be sobering for us. Because if there's anyone who had the greatest advantage of knowing Jesus, it would have been his fellow citizens of Nazareth, right? He lived almost three decades walking among them, working among them, worshiping among them, living among them, and yet here they are becoming blinded by their own familiarity of Jesus. Blinded by a familiarity of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, I think we see that as we pick through their line of questioning in verse 54. Look with me. He says, they, they, they say this, where does this man, not even calling him Jesus, where does this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? You see, the, local, the, the locals know that, hey, Jesus went to the same school as every other kid. Well, we were the teachers. So, so where then has Jesus discovered this incredible wisdom? They continue in verse 55. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and, and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? You catch what they're saying? They're saying, hey, we know his folks. We know his family. He grew up here with us. He's one of our own. He is a fellow Nazareth. Nazarene. Nazarene. I think that's right. And this blindness of familiarity leads them straight into unbelief. And we see it there, right? In verse 57, they took offense. Matthew says they took offense at him. And Matthew concludes his account by saying, and Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of what? Because of their unbelief. So, so how did this sour so quickly? What, what could Jesus have said that would have been so offensive that they would turn their backs on their own hometown hero? Well, I think it's because of what he was saying about himself. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 records, I think, the same account. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And Jesus comes to Nazareth, where he has been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and Jesus stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's 
favor. So here, here Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's reading from one of uh, the Jews' uh, very well-known and cherished passages out of Isaiah, which spoke of the coming Messiah, their long-awaited king. And look how Luke continues the account in verse 20. And Jesus rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue are, are fixed on Jesus. And Jesus begins to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know, no doubt, I think at this moment, there you could hear like literally a pin drop. Did he just say what? Claiming to be the Messiah. And, and, and we, if we put ourselves in their shoes, to them, Jesus is just simply Mary's kid, right? The son of the carpenter, that kid that they saw run up and down their street as a child, the teenager they themselves taught in their school. But now he's coming to us and saying, hey, I am your Savior. I'd imagine that at this moment, their hearts are flooded with anger and bitterness and jealousy. And I think, I think it's true if you look down in Luke, they, they try to kill him. You see, being blinded by their familiarity with Jesus, they cannot see Jesus as anyone else other than what he's always been to them. And sadly, with Jesus right in front of their faces, they miss the truth of Jesus. So before we move on and consider the second story, let us examine our own hearts. For I think all of us, I'd, I'd suggest all of us, have been blinded in one way or another by our familiarity with Jesus. For some, maybe you've known Jesus simply as a historical figure. He's a, he's a good teacher, a, maybe a religious reformer, but at the end of the day, he's a human being. And you're blinded in that familiarity of how you think of Jesus that as you study his teachings and consider his words, you cannot see the connection of his deity to his words and you fail to see the authority he has over your life. If you find yourself here, I, I encourage you to consider anew the words of Jesus as he says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I, I think this is the call to put away any preconceived notion for how any one of us may think of Jesus. He's calling you. He's calling me to believe in his deity, his authority, to believe him as our Savior and Lord, our God. So if you're here this morning in person or if you've gathered with us online, I encourage you if, if, to, that if you have questions about the person of Jesus, let's chat. Reach out on Facebook right now. Message us. We would love to begin that conversation with you. If you're here in person, let's chat outside and continue this conversation. And I suspect for many of, others of us, Christ is often hindered by the blindness of our familiarity in Jesus that we lose the awe and wonder and the treasure that we have in Jesus. You know, right before I got married, I purchased a 2002 Dodge Neon. Great car. 40,000 miles. Great car. No rust. It gave us eight amazing years of that car before finally 
conking out last fall. And I love, I love the neon. Uh, but it had, <laughs> I was reminiscing with Emily last night, it had a lot of issues. Basically, every fluid in the car leaked. Um, and the biggest issue was the transmission. And I'm not a car guy, but that's not good, right? <laughs> the transmission it had been rebuilt, and it constantly leaked. And so maybe once a month, especially in the colder months, when you'd get in the car to go, which you usually go forward, right, it, it wouldn't shift into gear, and, and you'd be stuck. You could only go in reverse. You couldn't go forward. And I, I could have gotten it fixed, uh, but the reason why I love my mechanic in McFarland uh, is that he's honest, and he said, hey, it's not, worth, it's not worth the cost to fix this car. Um, there were so many little quirky things to this car. You know, no, no power locks or windows, so I always pretended like I was locking it. Uh, when it rained, the front passenger floorboard, like, it was always soaked. I don't know how water was getting in. If you took a turn too hard to the right, like, there's always this squeal coming from the right side of the car. And the list goes on. It was a very quirky car. But here's the deal. I didn't think twice about it. When the car was stuck in neutral, unable to shift, I knew the process. I knew how to figure it out to get it going again. It's not a big deal. See, I knew what to expect of my neon. I was familiar with the problems. I knew the ins and outs of how this car would function, and nothing took me by surprise. And friends, I think sometimes that's how we approach God. That we've come to know, that, that we've come to know what to expect of God. That we, we're blinded in, in a sense of familiarity, that we're unable to like avail ourselves to any new category of God's immeasurable greatness, failing ultimately to see all of who God is. Instead of approaching God in awe and wonder, I think we often approach God in a proud and arrogant way to say to God, hey, I know exactly who you are. When we did finally part with the neon to enter into to minivan life, which is great, my world was shattered. We got a backup cam, heated seats, built-in window shades. Great invention when you have kids. It had cruise control and power locks. It doesn't take much for me to be blown away, right? But I had, here, here's the reality, I had no category to even comprehend that when you buy a more modern vehicle that these things even exist. For with a neon, I had come to expect the same things I always expected when I got in. But if that's our approach to God, we've, we've wrongly like packaged him up into some little box that, that, that fits our own little finite understanding of who he is. But what a proudful, prideful way in which we would think then that our expectation of God is all that he can be. That our expectation of God is all that he can be because he's so much more. May our familiarity with Jesus never blind us from the truth that we desperately need Jesus in every aspect of our life. We don't reach a point where we don't need him anymore. Jesus is our teacher. We're the ignorant ones. Jesus is our healer. We are the sick ones. Jesus is our savior. We are the lost ones. Vine Church, may we never lose our sense of awe and wonder of Jesus. So not only does, is there a blindness of familiarity that can lead us to unbelief, so does our sin. 
Look at the beginning of chapter 14. It's our second story. Beginning of chapter 14, we come to another set of characters who we will see is blinded by a sin, a love of sin, excuse me, who are blinded by the love of sin, and they miss the treasure of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 14, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and Herod said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And granted, the timeline of these verses is a little bit tricky because Herod has already killed John when he now hears about Jesus. And we don't know how long ago um, that John was actually killed. We're just told that at this time, right, by Matthew, at this time, Herod believes Jesus must now be John the Baptist brought back to life. But Matthew goes back into time in verse 3. He's recounting the murder of John. Verse 3, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have him. So let's pause here and just simply say, who, who is this Herod? Because if you, if you know your Bible a little bit, you know that there, Herod is mentioned throughout the gospel accounts, yet they're actually not all the same person. And the family tree of Herod I dived in a little bit this week, it's incredibly complicated. It's more bizarre than like a daytime soap opera, which I've never seen, but it's filled with incredible scandals of love and power and deception, all that stuff. Honestly, it's a family who would have thrived in like our reality TV age of viewing. And it's a family tree that begins with Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is the one that's mentioned early on in Matthew at the birth of Christ. The Magi come and visit Herod the Great. And it's Herod the Great who slaughters the young boys of Bethlehem. Well, after that time, Herod the Great dies, and his kingdom is divided amongst some of his sons. And one of these sons is Herod Antipas, who is this Herod who's in our narrative. So he's the son of Herod the Great. And he's ruling over the land of Jesus' earthly ministry. And what does Matthew tell us here in the account? He says that Herod throws John the Baptist into prison because he speaks out against Herod's unlawful marriage to a woman named Herodias. And why does John do this? Why does John speak out against Herod? Well, to answer that, we have to dive a little bit more into the scandalous family tree of Herod the Great. For Herodias, as her name may uh, give away, is, is related to Herod the Great. She's a granddaughter to Herod the Great. And strangely, Herodias marries her half-uncle, Philip. And together they have a daughter, Salome, who, as we will see, is the daughter that then is mentioned later in this account. And and interestingly, years later, this daughter will actually marry her half-uncle, thus becoming her mother's sister-in-law. It's bizarre. So Herod Antipas, the the Herod in our narrative, he's, he's also married. However, after a visit to Rome to visit his brother Philip, Herod Antipas falls in love with Herodias, his brother's wife, and it's actually his own niece. So if my explanation of the family tree was confusing, it's because it is. Just know this. The marriage of Herod and Herodias violated God's law for two reasons. One, it was incestuous. Herod was the niece, or Herodias was the niece of Herod. And it was adulterous. They were already married. 
So that's why John the Baptist rebukes Herod. He calls out their sin because it is sin. And Herod and Herodias hate John for this reason. We see it there in verse 5. And though he, Herod, wanted to put John to death, Herod feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So, so here we have Herod. He, he wants to put John to death, but fearing a Jewish uprising, Herod keeps John alive. And we're going to see that it's this sense of fear, that Herod is driven by a fear of others that prevents John, yes, from killing him now, but it's ultimately the fear that will soon lead him down the path of murdering John. And it all begins with a birthday party that goes completely off the rails. Verse 6, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths, and, he, and his guests he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And it's certainly a gross story. And, and commonly, Roman nobles like Herod, they, they would hold stag birthday parties where there'd be excessive drinking, excessive eating, sexual indulgences would be the standard. So this is not a birthday party as, as we think of them. And it's highly unlikely that Herodias' daughter, that she's simply performing this like cute kid ballet number. It's far more likely that this is a seductive dance planned for this moment so that in Herod's drunken state, his lustful desires will again get the best of him. And it does. But notice why Herod complies with this wicked request. It's fear. Verse 9, look at it. But because of his oath, because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it. It says that he's sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it. You see, Herod was more concerned with the admiration of men than the damnation from God. Herod lived by a code not of doing what was right, but by simply doing that which was advantageous for him. And tragically, John loses his life because of Herod's sinful choices. See, Herod, he's blinded by his sin. He's, he's blinded by his lustful appetite for sex. He's, he's blinded by this, this fear of others that controls him. And Herod misses the opportunity to treasure Christ. And sadly, it's this love of sin that we see in Herod's life that enslaves every part of it that historians will tell us that in just a short while, this lifestyle of sin will lead him down a dark path of being exiled and banished from his own kingdom. It's a tragically wasted life. But before us all is just the full, on full display is the power of sin, right? Right? The full display of the power of sin. Because this is the horrific truth of sin. Sin always blinds us to the things of God. You see, Herod, he was told the truth. John called him to repentance, but nothing changed. So we examine our hearts. What about you and me? When we're confronted with sin that's present in our life, 
How do you respond? Do you get angry? Maybe deny it, dismiss it, or do you respond in humility? You see, if you're in Christ, we must always respond in humility. In humility when we're confronted with our sin. Otherwise, our story will end like Herod, blinded by the love of our sin and failing to see the treasure we have in Jesus. This is the truth. Sin left unchecked will destroy you. As John Owen famously said, said kill sin or it will kill you. So, so in our lives, we, we learn from Herod, right? We do well to learn from Herod and quickly, quickly repent and turn to faith to Jesus and come to the foot of the cross because there is forgiveness. There is grace. There is mercy, We come to the feet of Jesus in humility and repent. But the larger question then is, but what about those around us? What about those around us where there's hard soil? How do we get the scales of sin that's blinding others to drop from their eyes? Well, we consider John's life. We consider John's life. John was called by God to be a prophet. To, to go into the darkness of the culture of his day and do what? Tell the truth of God. No matter the response, no matter the opposition, that was John's calling. And that calling is ours as well. Jesus says earlier in Matthew, he says, You, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Therefore, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's Jesus talking to you. If you're a follower of Christ, you are called like John to tell the people of our world the truth of of what the truth of God is. And we back that truth up by living it out in front of those in our lives. And here's what I don't like. I'll be honest. Here's what I don't like. Part of calling this truth about God out, part of declaring that, may require that you and I tell the truth about sin. Are you willing to tell others the truth about sin? It's not a popular message. But there will be times when standing for the truth is more important than keeping peace. John the Baptist understood this, and he died because of it. Think, think about this. John the Baptist, he, he didn't die because he was out there telling Herod the love of Christ. Rather, he died for telling Herod that his relationship with Herodias was sinful, murdered, because he confronted a couple with their sin. So if we place ourselves in John's shoes, what, what would you have done? The easier, safest, most comfortable thing is to keep your mouth shut. And as a disclaimer, we do not know the nuances of their relationship between John and and, and Herod, but we do simply know this, that John tells Herod it's not lawful for you to have her. That's God's truth. And I'm not saying, don't hear me say this, I'm not saying that we need to live lives like that we're always looking to confront others, that we uh, need to publicly condemn sin uh, in, in front of us. But I do think 
we learn from John and we lean into boldness. Maybe bolder than we're typically comfortable with. Should we be courteous, ears to hear, respectful, winsome? Absolutely. This is the point that I'm simply trying to make as we consider John. May we never shy away from declaring the truth of God. Because if folks have any shot of repentance, if anyone's going to repent, they first must know what sin is. And if we're not willing to tell them the truth, then who will? And I know God is sovereign and He can work in many different ways. But if you find yourself sitting here or, or watching this and you, and you find this, this lack of boldness or just lack of desire to, 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 to carry on this example that we see in John, I just want to close with this, that call you to remember this, that life on this earth, it's not about, it's not about you and it's, it's not about me. Life's not about our physical comfort or, or pleasure. It's not about gaining as much wealth or power as we can. It's not about our fame or admiration that we can receive from others. Life on this earth is about God and His glory. Life on this earth is about God and His glory. And if Jesus was a tyrant, this truth should frighten us. But that's not true. God loves us, and He proved it at the cross. For God could have left you and I. He could have left us dead on the road, right? He would have been justifiable to do that. Just dead on the road in our sin, blinded. But He made a provision. He made a way out. At the cross, Jesus makes the blind see. And that is our hope. That no matter how blindly you've become, you're never too far blinded not to have your sight restored. Don't miss the call of Jesus. In Nazareth, with his own countrymen, Jesus was there. He was providing a way out of their blindness of familiarity, calling on them to believe in him as their Messiah. And get this, even in the wicked family tree of Herod, I cannot, I don't know if we could find a more wicked, sinful family tree than that of Herod. You know what? Jesus was there. He was providing a way out of their blindness of sin, having John present to declare the truth of God. Our God is kind. He's always in the business of making a way out of our sin. There's always a way out. Do not miss Jesus. Do not miss Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled. We're humbled by these stories, knowing that in a lot of ways, this should be us. For apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, I pray that we we allow these, these stories to absorb deep down. That we catch a greater glimpse of the awe and wonder of the salvation that we have in you. Knowing that it's a work fully of you. And may we take courage in your truth. 
and to follow the steps of, of John, to be bold. And even if it costs us our head, knowing that we've gained eternal life by standing on your word. Lord, help us to be bold proclaimers of the hope and truth of what you've done on the cross. We need your help. I know in my own spirit I fall prey short of this often. Lord, help us by your spirit to strengthen us by your word. May we be a people confidently standing upon the truth that you've revealed yourself to be through your word. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for you this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen.